Welcome to this episode of Pain Removed Performance Improved, and I am absolutely delighted to have Steve Haynes with me today. And Steve Haynes' work has been known to me for a while, and Steve, I'm going to let you tell us what that is, but I just want to let everybody know that this very brilliant book, which is part of a series that you've written, but let's stay with this one, Pain is Really Strange, written by you, art by Sophie Standing, both the writing and the art and the basis of this book are just stunning. So what inspired you to do it? And can you briefly introduce us to what you do and how you came to write it? Yeah, I'm a body worker. That's a really important identity for me. I trained as a chiropractor, did a lot of yoga, uh, but something unsatisfied with the structural models. So as a chiropractor, I learned to adjust. And in yoga, I learned to stretch. I used to think there was a perfect stretch for every ill at one stage in my life. But I learned it's more complex than that. And the idea of, for me, manipulating and trying to fix the structure, I kept adjusting things and kept focusing on alignment. And I didn't get the results I was hoping for. So that was a deep dive into pain and pain science and learning much more about complex human systems. And by appreciating complexity, I actually found yeah. it was really freeing, not limiting, actually gives us much more tools that we can use to work with the human condition. So the pain book was my first attempt to summarize that. I wish it was going to be a leaflet for my client. And then I was lucky. It just got bigger and bigger. And I thought... Um, I was lucky in finding an artist who was really young and hungry and just she's so smart and really takes the ideas. But the idea from a short pamphlet for my clients to a bigger book and getting a publishing contract, that's how it worked out. But the initial idea was how to really clearly communicate in a comic form what I'd learned about complexity, but trying to make that simple. So a comic book about pain that was trying to make a complex idea simple. That was the goal. Well, Steve, I think you've achieved it. And one of the things that you do, I mean, loads, as the first time I read it and the second time I read it and the third time I read it, it's one of those things that grows on you as you get into it. As a structural integrator myself and somebody who works extensively with fascia, I am witness to some of the leading research in, well, it's ch changing pain science because what we're understanding is fascia is actually the largest sensory organ of the body by some magnitude. And of course, as you well know, that changes everything, most particularly the context in which we regard the nervous system, because it's made of fascia and it's the transmitter of everything at the subtle level. Now, back in the 80s, Dean Juhan wrote Job's Body. I've no doubt you grew up on that, cut your teeth Indeed. on that as well yes, as with the rest of us. Very, very dear man. And he wrote that he thinks that inside the spiral of the triple collagen helix, the fascial what, what we call it, the fascial thread, let's say that for one of a better word and to make it fit with yoga, the fascia nadi, um, that inside every single one is a is cerebrospinal fluid. So in other words, we, cerebrospinal fluid. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, yes. Keep going. The, the idea being, and I, I'm not saying this is necessarily right or wrong, but what, what it meets in your book is the idea that this body wide sense of ourselves our sense of sensation is so refined and so detailed and so everywhere so ubiquitous to the body 
that it completely changes our maps of the linear idea that a pain signal comes in, it goes to the brain, the brain has an amount of pain, and then we need amount of painkillers to bring it down. That is such a simple linear concept that you 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 tackle really early on in your graphic way. It's just brilliant. What, talk to me because my my life is spent saying we are non-linear biologic forms and ah so go well, I, one I just great question there is um i used to have this on a business card but it freaked people out too much um if you close your eyes how do you know you exist uh, this is a very old philosophical problem well yeah. one answer to that that we're learning about science you exist because your fascia tells you so so we have lots of feedback, lots of sensitive uh, systems uh, that are gathering information. And a lot of that happens through our fascia network. So instead of it just being inert collagen fibers that stretch and pull and get sticky or hold scar tissue, what we're realizing is fascia is this incredible sense organ, as you said, the largest sense organ in the body. So the very stuff of existence, we have information sources that create a sense of self. I like to talk about uh, kind of the data sets that we use to create our sense of self. One is the fascia. All the slow and quick signals coming from fascia generating a sense of size, shape, weight, the form of who we are the essential armness of an arm, the weight, the itch, the flow, the temperature, all that information comes from fine nerve endings, a lot of them living inside the fascia. We also have information from our organs. So we have the tissues and we have the organs. The organs go along the vagus nerve. Now, those little free nerve endings also live in the organ wall. So you could also say they're also in the the, the fascia that binds the organs and the musculature, the, the structure of the organs. So on one level, they're from the fascia around the organs, but it's collected by the vagus nerve. So these two data sets, information from the tissues, fascia, information from the organs and blood vessels all flowing into our brain. We also have one other big data set, and that's our experience of our environment, the world around us, our external senses. So information from the outside, information from the inside is all collated to give a sense of ourself. And this is really important. This sense of information flowing in has to be collated with memories and expectations and histories. So already we have a human being who's complex, much more important than just a knee joint that's out of line. That information isn't just about the position of the joint, it's about the inflammation around the joint. And then that has to be matched up with what's happening in my organs, whether I have enough sugar or energy to adapt. And that has to be collated with all the information about, well, I've got to jump over this uh, fence, otherwise I can't do what I need to do or I'm going to fail. So all those signals are all collated together and filtered through our expectations, our histories, to give us a sense of ourself as we are at that present moment. So we are sensitive human beings. We rely on data streams to continually construct a sense of ourself. But what we've realized is that slow, 
background tone of the body, that information stream from fascia and organs is essential, is the, the foundational stuff that our brain uses to have a, a reference point or an anchor about what's stable in a world that changes and in memories that are labile. How does that sound? It sounds as exquisitely complex as we are. And what I love about your book is this balance between what is innately complex and innately simple. And one of the things that I find people love when, I, for example, if I'm teaching embryology, is the idea that we self-assemble out of one piece, one piece of fabric, just hallmark a day when I'm in the anatomy lab and I've been given a cadaver to work on to find my favourite idea, which is that there is a diaphrasoas rather than an iliosoas. In other words, fascially, the diaphragm is continuous with the psoas, not the, the psoas works very differently to the iliacus. And I have this huge um, personal issue with Gray's anatomy, because if you look up the psoas, it will refer you to the iliopsoas complex. I'm also annoyed with the French anatomist hundreds of years ago who named the, the psoas the male version of the feminine psoa, plural psoi. So it's just one of my, you know, we all have our little, yeah, and I'm like, hmm. And when you've given birth and had babies and things, you have a whole relationship with that internal sensation that it's almost like you can't just accept what you're told. There's got to be more to it. And I was doing this dissection and I, I removed the mesentery and the diaphragm deflated. And I looked at my colleague, John Sharkey, who's the clinical anatomist I'm working with in Dundee. And I said, John, what? what? And he's laughing. He said to me, you've written a book about fascia, that it's all one piece. Which bit of one piece didn't you get? No. And I said, intellectually, I know it's all one piece, but with the mesentery? With, he said, with the organs, with the viscera, with everything, it's one piece. You understand the embryology. It's a whole geometry. It's a whole organic origami, one piece. And it's like, okay. And then for me, that was one of my moments where I had to work with the interface between the intellectual mind and the actual experience. You know how that has this different yeah, quality because it's different complexity. You refer to this in the book, and that's what I wanted to go on to, was how or ask you a question, when you're working with your clients, do you find that when you can distinguish what's happening, whatever it is, that it changes their experience through the value of that distinction? I, yes. I, 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 let me come back to that. I, I just want to celebrate some of your language there. I really enjoyed the idea of dia, dia, diaphrasoas, did you call it? Yeah. And yeah. organic origami. What for yeah. me in this notion of interfaces. So one of the clear strands that emerges from basically studying the anatomy, as you so beautifully described, is the sense of a body as a connected. We're far more yeah. about connections than separations. The separations That's are it. from an anatomist's knife, and they make bad decisions sometimes. But let's take that further. We are connected internally in diverse and remarkable ways. But human beings are connected externally. We are incredibly influenced by our networks and our engagements with the world around us. So we have this thread of connection internally in health that if we can appreciate, that's advantageous to life. And we have threads of connection to 
our culture, our family, our history, and realizing we're not separate from these things. So that shift of realizing the body is a living process and much better to talk about a person, I think, a person in a body that's a process that's dynamically created and always being recreated according to the data streams and the sense of safety. That's an ongoing negotiation. Yes. So how do we work with that clinically? I, I just think that finding the threads of people connecting is really, really useful. How can I reconnect to safety quite often? How can I connect to a sense of agency and control? These are narratives that are really important and to realize the things that make you more sensitive, that strip away control, that make you afraid. Those journeys of separation often really limit us. And if we can find some sort of thread of feeling, connection, appreciating the sensitivity in our body, appreciating that my family networks, my power structures in my life, I'm connected to these and they change my experience of myself, they change my experience of the body in ways that are extraordinary, not just minor effects, but huge effects. So, yeah, riffing and exploring our notion of connection, uh, our ability to feel as a journey of connection, our ability to be sensitive to what's around us as a journey of connection. Uh, for me, that's a powerful metaphor, one of the tools that I'm really trying to help people work with. So when they're stretching, you're connecting to your body, you're feeling things differently, you're allowing more possibility. Um, how does that sound? It sounds gorgeous. It's, uh, it, it brings one of my favourite words in, stretching, but we'll talk about that in a minute. One of the things that we're up against in the world of anatomy and structure and, and teaching that as either a manual therapy or a movement modality is this idea that the language needs to change. And you commented on my language, I comment on yours. I love the way you talk about complexity and you talk about different dimensions and interfaces. And last night we were online with Dr. Wilbur Kelsick, who's a chiropractor in Canada working with the Olympic athletes. And what he was saying was the enormous pressure on the athletes to time their performances in terms of tempo and rhythm the enormous pressure on them socially from their families, their colleagues, their co-team, everybody else, the pressure from Tokyo for them, for the official jurisdiction and management of COVID amongst the athletes, amongst the visitors, this whole massive multi-dimensional webbing has come together to create this event. And then what we have is the individual who is in that event, who has to perform not just perfectly timing, but at that time, it's that 20 seconds, not another 20 seconds, the one designated right now for that race or performance. And what Wilbur and John Sharkey were both saying last night that was so remarkable was that the people that have pulled out or the people, the gym, the Irish gymnast whose finger was hurt on the pummel and he couldn't perform, Simone, famous, and all the words the language with which their distress has been described is changing. They started using words like proprioceptive awareness. And I think they call it the twisties in America for being completely what we would call sprawled. 
like overloaded, sensory overload massively. But what came out of the conversation, Steve, was this respect for the individual to know their limit. And what I saw was like within a web, they had an internal web completely connected to an external web and it was being pulled and pushed and, you know, held in these sort of tension compression angles. And they just had this huge onus on them to perform. And somebody in the chat said, do you think the athletes choose for themselves or it was chosen for them? And this is what I want. This is the piece, the magic piece. Both John and Wilbur felt that not only did the athletes choose for themselves, but they taught young people more by their willingness to take care of themselves, to say enough when it was enough. And to find a centre that said, I'm not going to kill myself for this. I'm going to listen to myself. I've, I've done enough. I can't do more. And also their acknowledgement of their teammates and their families and the love. They use the word love to explain this, what you're referring to, this collective connectivity outside the body that is so intimately interwoven with the internal management of these flows of information, be they social, psychological and what have you. And so you're, you're both saying similar things in totally different ways. And I just love it because it's such a different language that we see ourselves as part of this web. And how how do you help your clients manage a particular pain in that context? How do you join those dots for them? Yeah, I, I think... Because um, it's huge. It's huge. We could talk about this is. for weeks. I can feel it. Yeah, the, this one of the responses to complexity is that it's overwhelming. So we have so yeah. much going on. And it's necessary and useful and essential for human beings to be able to pass that information, to focus on what's important at a given time. But there's an old philosophical strand. Kant would talk about the manifold, this streaming, bubbling mass of information. And how do we make sense of it? What's the essential features that help us function? Human beings, I'm going to offer, need safety. The first, most fundamental act that we're doing is am I safe right now and it's sort of coding the world looking for signs of danger to a degree that we're incredibly sensitive to anything that is perceived as threat and clearly social status performing uh, doing well is life and death actually to be accepted by your peers and to be validated by your peers is as important as running away from a tiger Uh, or surviving a car accident, your social status and how you are perceived by others for social animals is deeply, deeply advantageous and deeply important. So safety is really important and our place in society, our acceptance is deeply important. Can you imagine being an athlete like Simone Biles, whose whole Life has been in the public gaze, who's been around, we know now, abusers who've really transgressed her boundaries as a human being. And she's kept going and she's been incredible. But that possibility, you look and just her bravery to acknowledge that sometimes 
her sense of this woman who's got a relationship to a body that nobody's had before, sometimes that can still be complex and difficult and she can get lost in that. I read a piece saying that she can have two-week periods often, relatively often in her training, where she loses this ability to refine all this information and focus on what she's really good at. And this seemed to coincide with the Olympics when there's much more pressure and time going on for her. So, yeah, how do we make sense of all of that? Well, safety is the really, really defining thing and finding things that we can really rely on are repetitive. Sometimes they can be habits and rituals. Yeah. That that kind of anchors of being safe is really important. For me, safety is an embodied process. I can feel coherent with my body. I have an ability that's founded on practice to feel the size, shape, and weight. I've The things that I'm going to do, I'm not going too far out of my comfort zone. Athletic performance and flow moments are predicted on deep practice, and our challenge is no more than 10% of what we're capable of. If we keep doing more than the 10%, that seems to be predictive of injury and risk being too much. So this notion of challenge and recover, building from a safe pace, building deep neural grooves by refined practice, and then offering that challenge, a little bit of challenge, but not too much. Um, all of that is like our sense of safety increases. So we're not, it's a, not a fixed permanent thing. It gets bigger and bigger with practice and practice. Just the key is starting from a safe pace, really putting the time in and not going too far too quickly. And then all of that has to be managed with all the pressures and judgments of life and finding people you trust, people you uh, who are going to honor you and support you in that growth of journey and not berate you when you fall down. And, um, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because, you know, we we talk a lot about you mention it about clients. You refer obliquely to clients being kind of being responsible for themselves or their ability to respond and I don't know if you find this in your practice, but I often find that that balance is is um, hinged around the ability to acknowledge the self and say, I am enough. I did well. This is OK. These other situations, I'm not going to drive myself to somehow overcome and look as good as everybody else. That somehow if we can release the self-judgment and the self-criticism and honour the self-awareness that that small step you talk about one of the things you the cartoons in the book is about taking small steps and incremental changes which of course is how the tissue grows itself and how it adapts tiny gestures at a time accumulating that that's so powerful and I do you ever find with your clients that you you have to encourage them to take care of themselves first and focus on that listening to that self-awareness listening to that self-feedback yeah there's two essential gestures with clients i think is like uh build stuff up calm stuff down so that's <laughs> adapted from greg layman who uses a, a another word instead of stuff but um yeah. the idea that some people you're really trying to build their capacity and resilience but you're going slowly and doing it small steps and this sense that uh, from a secure base, you can expand and expand and expand, but challenge and recover, we need to do that in a graded way. 
and some people you're just pushing them to be um to feel more and to to develop resilience but it's more like you can do this there is fear of movement but the fear is the limiting thing it's not your tissues or your structure or your capability it's actually the hesitancy inside you and that's much more motivational in the sense you can do this and i'm going to be the cheerleader for you to try and do new things and explore the limiting beliefs and the things that are making you scared of movement and you know and then that first group some of them let's go more slowly you're pushing too hard you're putting too much pressure on yourself let's go back and slowly build your capacity so that you can do passionate amazing things you will be able to get to the top of the mountain but you need to challenge and recover and practice more before you try and do the death defying feat we can get there but let's think about 6 months and lots of resources and building before we push you too hard so yeah build stuff up calm stuff down uh being creative around that and finding the right moment uh, for the client is is fabulous for our clinical work isn't it yeah and uh, and it's music to my ears because obviously you know everybody has all these programs and apps about goal setting and driving forward and we were talking about this last night with with the olympic athletes but at every single level i think we are very um prone to judge the number of times we go to a class or we do an event like a walk i i don't know about you but if i say to my clients what's your movement how how much do you move in a day because i'm actually trying to ascertain how many hours they spend sitting it's very often oh i i do yoga twice a week and pilates twice a week and i go to the gym on saturdays and i run this many times that's their movement schedule and what we often tease open the idea is there a, is there a resting schedule to match the movement schedule what do you mean and it's like no the good thing you tick off the list of events that you achieved in mobility but you don't counter them with the events that you rested recuperated restored and replenished yourself it's like this very goal oriented society i find it more so in young people Yeah, I completely agree. This sense of what we're achieving, but it's going to be founded on uh, rest and sleep and recovery strategies. One of the stats I like to quote is Roger Federer, the best predator we've the world has ever seen. In tournaments, he sleeps thirteen hours a day. He's like an amazing sleeper. He's one of the best sleepers ever, and he's one of the oldest, most wily, sort of elegant tennis players we've ever seen. but probably that intense physical activity is founded on his ability to rest and recover so yeah you you kind of think like you got like i don't know i was working with a triath or wanna be triathlete really he's just had kids he's got a busy job and he's hitting 40 and uh, he still wants to be his do his triathlete and it's like yeah but look at the things your father your job and you're yeah. putting triathlete into that you can do that but you're going to have to rest a huge amount and really factor in the rest in ways um you know you need to make a schedule for the rest as well as the activity but it's oh god we're singing off the same hymn sheet now one of the things um i wanted to ask you about that you look at so beautifully in your book um and i'm quoting from that page i'm showing you where you say we have lots of danger signals we learn to amplify danger our nervous system becomes sensitized and then you say if we have lots of good news we get better at processing good news i want to ask you about the when your use of the word sensitized because in some ways i think 
the discoveries about fascia are showing us that we are all naturally much more sensitive and multidimensional than perhaps history trained us in classical biomechanics and anatomy as if they're separate from the being that lives in them. Separate whole story. Um, can we generate good news? I, I mean, are we talking about playing Pollyanna with ourselves? You know, whatever's bad, I can make it good. And we we want that. We want to transform you know, like the young Irish athlete who, who who hurt his finger and couldn't carry on. He said, I will leave these games a better athlete. I will leave these games a better man because this experience has taught me so much. And yes, I'm gutted that I, I, I'm not in the running for gold now, but at the same time, I've learned so much. So is, is that what you mean when you say, look, we get better at processing good news? Can we even be transforming the lead of our wounds into the gold of our gifts? Can we can we actively, is that the good news you're talking about? Yeah, very much. I mean, that that's the, the, I'm essentially quite hopeful around our human ability's ability to transform experience. If we look at trauma, the, um, it used to be seen as a, a life sentence and you were broken, but so post-traumatic stress disorder led to a lot of great yeah. research around trauma, but it also led to how do people actually recover from, now we've got a definition, what actually happens afterwards. And depending on the type of the event, but 30 to 70 percent of people will define themselves as having grown after terrible events, you know, death of loved ones or catastrophic accidents or thing, you know, being attacked. Even the most horrible, nasty human experiences, we have post-traumatic growth. Human beings are often tempered in the fire of trauma and emerge having found meaning and growth from those processes. They're different, but absolutely. Uh, what's your phrase? The lead turning into gold. That's absolutely possible and emerges from the data of looking at trauma. So uh, we do have to understand, though, some of the barriers from evolution to doing this. So uh, we are very negatively biased because it's been adaptive in our, in our development. Uh, a famous example of this, uh, what, a famous uh, illustration of this was, if you have a bowl of cockroaches and you, no, let me do this the other way around. If you have a bowl of cherries and you put, a, put one cockroach in the bowl of cherries, one negative experience, the whole bowl is disgusting. People won't eat the cherries. That's just how it is. Let's flip that around. You have a bowl of cockroaches and you put one cherry in, <laughs> everything's still, still disgusting. So we are very, very negative, mm. neg negatively biased. Yeah. It takes far more good messages to outweigh a bad message. Think about that. Another way, way you can illustrate that is, you know, 100 people tell you that you look fantastic in that black dress. And then one person says your bum looks big. What do you remember at the end of the day? Unfortunately, that's how brain works. So we have to work really hard to reinforce the positive message to help people feel confident to overcome fear of movement and fear of feeling. Uh, and that's a long grind sometimes, but it absolutely can be possible. We can retrain our ability to feel. We can uh, be our own inner cheerleader. And there is absolutely a time for that, while also acknowledging what's what's real and what's important and that things are difficult and we might have lost but it's so easy to be overwhelmed by that and feel hopeless and this sense of being proactive and kind of really is pain as bad as you think it is could it be something else is this true is you know what are the danger messages 
that have been amplified in your experience? Where have they come from? Why do you believe that getting old is a problem? Why do you believe that your joint is damaged? Why do you believe that? Those are useful questions to look at these messages you received. And then this process of reframing them. The science is very good that certain classic danger messages have been far, far too overemphasized in our culture. And if we focus not so much on structure, but sensitivity and looking at all the things that are being sensitive, my divorce, my fear of getting old, the fact that I got a big tax bill, that makes us as sensitive as inflammation processes or a little bit of stretching the ligament because I had a twist when I fall. The twist in the ligament from falling is important, but at least as important are all those other things that are stressing you out and making you sensitive. They amplify danger signals. You know, if I'm tired, if I'm hungry, if I'm upset, that makes me as uh, that contributes to the sensitivity as much as the danger signal from an overstretched ligament following an accident. Yeah, it's fabulous. And, and what, what you're saying is fabulous that you're saying it, because one of the things I think that happens is people think they are out of control and they don't have a handle on any of the reasons for their pain or the escalation thereof or the volume of it. And what I think you do in this book and you're doing now is you I use this word carefully, but you're legitimizing the actual process of someone's power, it's not just mind over matter. It's understanding the integration of feeling, of language, of the narrative, of the decision, maybe choice even, to go down that route versus another one that could very, very slowly bring them out. And it was Carolyn Mace, Dr. Carolyn Mace's phrase, the lead of our turning the lead of our wounds into the gold of our gifts. And I and I think it's one of the most powerful quotes. Um because we're we're then looking at whatever that trauma is and instead of seeing it as a kind of a dead end where it's hopeless and you're helpless, it becomes the the grit in the oyster that turns into the pearl. Do you, do you know what I mean? That you, you bring it forward. Uh, I, I, the choice is a, a, um, a powerful word, isn't it? And yeah. Um, yeah. at times I think there is choice, but I like to actually frame it as skill building. There are things that happen to you. And often in trauma, there's, and pain. We're responding to very large old dynamics, evolution prioritizing, messages from doctors or messages in the culture that need to be updated, and a sense of wrongness about, you know, people who are different are often marginalized. And that sense of there's choices made for us in our culture that make it very hard for us to make authentic choices. But we can be more skillful in our response to the messages we've received. We can explore where does this come from and realizing it has a power, it has limited me, but I can also learn with support and practice and help. I can learn to reframe that and find other messages, other ways of reframing that. And uh, if we truly are processes, if we truly are connected human beings, we can find new connections and we can sort of nurture and skillfully um, enhance our ongoing recreation of our sense of self and our ongoing uh, lived experience of our body in ways that really extraordinarily, even the most 
nastiest, stickiest, horrible pain can be transformed by being skillful in how you frame it and uh, getting support to find new choices uh, in response to old problems. Well, I just commend you and love the book for your ability to, to encapsulate that in a story, essentially, so that by sitting reading that story, somebody actually gets the confidence to recognise that it's not you're not saying, oh, the pain's all your fault. And if you handled it properly in your head, you'd be fine. You're absolutely not saying that. What you are saying is it's valid scientifically that you can go through with these questions and there's space to wonder if it's possible that that there is a skill through there, the acquisition of which could transform your pain over time. And I think your book does that really, really beautifully. And it, it, I, I, I thank you for it on behalf of everybody that I hope will read it listening to this because it's, it's not patronising, it's not dictatorial, it's just an invitation to do what you've just said, which is to reframe, but learn that reframing as a skill and as a power. And I just a little example. I, I, I have a friend, uh, Dr. Bill Morgan, also originally a chiropractor um, in America, who did a presentation in um, 2016, I think it was, at the, the uh, Biotensegrity Congress in Washington about working with um, amputees. And it's something you refer to in your book, Phantom Limb Pain, and using mirrors. And I had somebody very close to me had a mild stroke and lost some of the use of their left hand. And I was able to phone him and say, help fast track. These are my qualifications, but they don't include this. Talk to me. And he very kindly and generously talked me through. He said, let go of everything you think, you know, just set it aside. He said, and then put your left hand inside a mirror box so that the right hand is being reflected in the mirror and your eyes see the reflection and your right hand. Okay, great. He said, now do the same thing with both hands, but your brain will see your right hand reflected as a left hand, not your left hand, and just keep working with it. And if you were on the other side of the table with somebody with your hand in the mirror box as well, working with them, magic will happen because of the skills that you have. And I was like, okay. And I really dared to just step into that unknown and give up my ideas of a plus b equals c from my own training and so imagine we're sitting working together this person's got their left hand that isn't really working inside a mirror box and i've got my hand on them and they've got their right hand that is working and i've got my hand on that and we're working together and what actually happens as i understand it is the brain adapts very very quickly to take up the space of the missing numb fingers and not need them. But what happens with the mirror box is that the eyes say to the brain, no, they're working, they're there. Please don't close that gap. We want you to open that gap, leave it where it is. I know you can't feel anything, but that's not the point. It's there, I can see it. And you set up this argument, as it were, this is me paraphrasing, this argument between the brain and what it thinks it knows, what it's being told isn't happening, and what it's trying to do to ameliorate the situation as a kind of a reflex love that and in into that discrepancy into that what's going on here in this particular case this person practiced for 20 minutes twice a day every day and within three weeks they on their own they did one session with me the rest they did on their own and 
what that did was it made me so excited about the possibility of seeing things differently, but how to put that across. So I've just done it with a little story that's very exciting and lovely, and it was great for me and the person that involved. But what you've done is encapsulated 30, 40 or 50 of those little gems, and you've put them all together in a book called Pain is Really Strange. I know you've got several in the Really Strange series. I haven't read them all, but I just know they'll be brilliant. And I just want to thank you for the care and the detail with which you've encapsulated those little stories, squished in some proper research at the bottom so everybody's reassured that you didn't just make it up on a good morning because you're clearly a poet. But you've brought poetry to the science and science behind the poetry. And I can't even tell you how much I appreciate it. Oh, gosh, John. Uh, well, uh, uh, thank you. I, I was um, really enjoying your clarity of describing mirror box therapy. That's a very hard thing to articulate in a few sentences. So you have a lot of skills in how you articulate things yourself. Uh, but yeah, that, that kind of finding the perfect metaphor and stories that are sticky. Sticky language is really, really important. Oh, yeah. Love that. And, um, you know, we have phrases that really limit us. A slip disc is a famous one. Oh, I did. I know. An unstable where? thing. Yeah, where's it going to go to? So that's a, but it's a really sticky yeah. metaphor. It makes your vertebral column feel unstable and things can slip out of line and it inherently generates fear. But also, we can replace the sticky language. We can inject new thought viruses, new language oh, that brilliant. Helps people realize. So, Motion is lotion is a nice one. Every time you move, you inject a bit of synovial fluid into the joint. Nature's best lubricant, and it really helps. So keep moving because it'll lubricate your joints every time. So, you know, that, that journey to find language that is sticky and meaningful and helps people find agency and, and, strength, and, and strength and choice that's a really, really tough ask. And I, I'm glad that some of the, the things I used in the book work for you. And uh, it's um, being really creative there. Partly we need to hear people's stories. And around pain, one of the golden insights is that the most limiting metaphors tend to be focused on a broken machine and that the damage is permanent. So permanency and oh, yeah. broken structure don't work well generally for people but if we focus on sensitivity adaptability and we focus more on journeys rather than battles those sort of metaphors where we're ability we can turn down our sensitivity we're an organic garden rather than a broken machine that's going to keep growing and keep adapting those sort of metaphors if you can weave them in generally tend to promote more adaptation, more health, less pain, more flexibility in our responses. I love it. And we're both wordsmiths, obviously. And I got so allergic to the word biomechanics. I, in in my first book, I dared to say, could we talk about ourselves as bioemotional rather than biomechanical? Because we are emotional. We're emotion in motion and energy in motion. It's not like a new thing. I didn't make that up. But the, the the word bioemotional integrity means so much more to me than biomechanical function because we're not mechanical. There are no levers in nonlinear biologic forms. And the idea that muscles even have origins and insertions becomes a bit of a joke when you're in this soft fixed heel dissection lab because you, you know, sternocleidomastoid is completely continuous with 
pectoralis major fibers, which are continuous with the rectus abdominis. And it's like, well, where does it end? It doesn't. And as you said brilliantly, the slip disc idea, when people think anterior, posterior, longitudinal ligament and a spinal column, it sounds like the stacks are wonky and something's slipped out of the wedge and it's going to, it's going to come out the side. So they get all precious and fragile. Whereas, in fact, it's a complete stocking. It's a complete tube. And as you said, where's it going? It's just squished. I say just squished only because I know that, you know, a lot of people, a squished disc is, is normal and they don't feel anything. But as you say, we're, we're responsible over the age for of 20, new... you've probably got a squished disc in that framework. Exactly. Hello. So, yes. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, Steve, I just can't thank you enough. I, I'm with you. Sticky language is going forward. I'm going to quote a couple of the things that you said here with, with joy. And um, thank you. Thank you for your time this morning. And thank you for your book, Pain is Really Strange. Now, is the best place to get that from your website? Yeah, if uh, bodycollege.net forward slash books has all the books I've, I've done and easy links to buy them. You can, of course, get them through Amazon and the normal sources, but um, going through the publishers often a bit nicer and they're pretty good. They have international networks. So you can access all that bodycollege.net forward slash books. Thank you. I can't wait to speak to you again. And I will let you know when this is published. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, Joanne. Thank you very much. <laughs>